Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Geraldine Doog, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here for this uh, session with uh, our special guest, Ilwad Elman, who is one of those young women who's going to make many of us, I think, feel um, very safe and somewhat um, uh, smug and lazy, and um, she's going to humble us, uh, as, as we were, I was anyway, last year, with uh, some other guests from Africa, and um, I can remember vividly that sense of thinking, gosh, we have our challenges, but my goodness, we're pretty safe by comparison. Ilwad's family certainly was not safe back in the early 1990s when civil war broke out in her home in Somalia. And her mother came to Canada with Ilwad and her two sisters, leaving her father, who was an extraordinary man, as we'll hear in a moment, to stay back in Somalia. I regret to say he was assassinated in March 1996, which Ilwad heard about from Canadian television when she was about four. She last remembers, well, she knows she saw him when she was about 18 months old. She went on living very much the life of a girl in the West, the sort of girl who might have come along to a festival organised like this, until her roots and her heritage just nagged at her and she went back to live in Somalia in 2010 and uh, to assist her mother, who had gone back some years earlier, to set up the Elman Centre, which we'll hear a lot of. But that tipping point, talk about a tipping point in a, in a young woman's life, that 2010 tipping point, which I've been getting sort of circumstances of uh, sitting at the back here, I keep asking little questions and more and more comes out, so I'm going to let her take us further. So we'll talk for about 20 minutes, uh, 30 minutes or so, and then I'll open the questions to you. So would you please welcome Ilwad Elman. Thank you. Ilwad, going back to Somalia was, you say, an immense culture shock. It's four years on now. Can you remember those early... You've probably sort of let them go back into the, into the recesses of memory, but what are your memories of coming to terms with that totally different place? Well, going back to Somalia was definitely a culture shock for me, and there's many barriers that I had to face, the biggest being that I didn't speak the language. So that was a very big issue for me. But going back, I didn't know what to expect. Just as many people like myself who were very young when they left Somalia, were not even born in Somalia, but have Somali roots. All I really knew about it was what has happened to my family in Somalia or what I saw in the media. So I expected the worst. I expected gunshots, war, really difficult lifestyle. And what compelled me to first go back to Somalia was not really that inviting in its first place. My mother had left my sisters and I when we were quite young in my early teens and she had gone back to Somalia to run the organization that my father founded. The reason why I wanted to go back is because we would lose contact with her for weeks at a time, my sisters and I. We would just hear about these grave violations that are happening in Somalia. That with phone calls that would end or drop and my mother just being missing for about weeks at a time, not understanding that, I didn't have that much of a great image already of what I was going into. Mm -hmm. So when I came back to Somalia, it was different than what I had expected, but it was still very difficult. And at that time, the front line, the war, it wasn't somewhere far off. It was literally in my backyard. Mortars, gunshots, all of that. And it was, of course, not easy. And were you consciously frightened? 
I was. I was very consciously frightened. And what I remember when I first came to Somalia is that actually growing up in Canada or anywhere in the West, maybe this is something that a lot of people can relate to. You always hear about death, but I had up until that point never really experienced somebody close to me, somebody that I'm sitting to just like I am right now with you, dying about an hour later. So I remember very vividly when I first came back to Somalia, the first person that died, I wanted to cry. And of course, because he was a friend of mine who was a guard at the house, and everybody laughed at me. And I was told, what, you're gonna cry every time somebody dies? So I was really traumatized by that for about two weeks. And I remember everywhere I would go, I would see his face and I just couldn't sleep, but that was just the first one. And I remember how much that impacted me. Till today, I remember that. But ever since then, it hasn't. You haven't cried since? When I haven't cried, and it just really? sensitizes you. You're desensitized to these grave and horrific violations that are happening every single day. But what I remember when I first came to Somalia is that I didn't expect that change to happen that quickly in me. And it says something about human beings as well, too. Adaptation. If you are, yeah. Mm. And you can become callous in a way if you're not careful. Exactly. And then mm. it also led me to think more, is that why this protracted conflict in Somalia has lasted so long? Because people just accept it? They become normal to it? Are you safe yourself walking around as a young woman? Well, like I said, the situation has changed a lot. When I first went, the crossfire and everything was literally everywhere. But in that, there was a little bit of security because you knew what areas to avoid. Uh. I remember we wouldn't leave the house until at least 9.30 in the morning to go to the office or anywhere because you'd wait for a radio program to announce which areas have had roadside bombs on them. So you kind of send out the testers earlier in the morning and you wait till 9.30 to hear what has happened already. But now, the situation has turned into guerrilla-style attacks, mm. tactics that you can't avoid, suicide missions, explosions, and this is very scary because you don't know what to protect yourself against. So every day is a gamble. And attitudes to women. Now, you, what, what did you find when you went back from this illustrious family, quite aristocratic, and we'll hear in a moment, just what a remarkable beacon of hope, I think is the word you use about your father. But attitudes to you as a young woman going back. Well, going back to visit my mother, who is the executive director of the organization, and right away I started working with her, so I am the boss's daughter, and I feel in a position that I can put out all these ideas that I have and expect people to listen, but no. <laughs> no, what people would see is a young woman. Okay, she's a woman, she's young, grew up in the West, westernized and radical ideologies that, of course, would not work in Somalia, expecting us to listen to her. That was very big challenge for me because I have not grown up in a situation where you can't just voice your opinion without consulting a hundred people or a hundred men before you put out an idea. But again, this is something that has changed gradually and it is something that I learned that you have to earn. And now I'm not in a position anymore where people look at me for being a young woman. Well, you told me that one of the real shocks was what you'd be talking in a room mm. uh, much smaller than this people would just walk out because yes. they decided you weren't worth listening to. Definitely. And that's now altering? It is. And I can't say that every single person will have that same experience because that is something that I paved the way for. That's not how it is. It's very individual. Mm. You have to really earn that from both men and female audiences, I find, in Somalia. If you have an idea, you have to really educate them and 
pitch that to them so that they are compelled enough to listen to you and to stay in that room. So every time, even till today, it is a little bit of a challenge to get people to take me seriously and listen to me, especially with my broken Somali, but <laughs> it works. So Do they speak English much? Actually, yes, it is taught in the schools, and a lot of people do speak uh -huh. English. It's not, of course, the first language by any means, but there's a lot of people who speak English. So let's go back to your father. Um, he was a remarkable man, wasn't he? I mean, there's just no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. What have you, what did you know about him in Canada? What have you learned about him in Somalia? Well, you know, what's actually very interesting about my father is that I didn't know him. He died when I was very young, and we left Somalia when I was, of course, very young. But my whole life is around him and what he has started, and he lives in me, and not only me, but my sisters as well, too. My, I have an older sister, a half-sister. Her mother's Italian, but we have the same father. She knew him even less than I did and my other sisters did, but she named her son after him. And it's so compelling, I think, that he has played such a big role in all of our lives. And I, the reason why is because of everywhere I go, every Somali I meet, and some non-Somalis as well, too, they know what he did. So I feel like I know him. And if I just give you a brief of some of the remarkable things that he's done is, till this day, he's considered the Somali father of peace. 18 years after his passing, you can walk down the streets of Mogadishu and see his famous slogan, drop the gun, pick up the pen, written on the walls. And what his main focus was is giving an alternative, an, opp an opportunity to the most disadvantaged communities in Somalia. He, was, um, he left Somalia actually when he was very young too. It was just, um, Somalia used to be colonized by Italy. And even after the colonization ended, they still had a lot of services and social support opportunities for people in Somalia. So he was actually taken as an orphan. He wasn't an orphan, but he was neglected by his family and he was a street child and he used to polish shoes for an income for himself at a very young age. So he had the opportunity to go to Italy and study there and but came back to Somalia as an engineer by trade. So he opened up a bunch of businesses throughout all of Mukdishu. When he opened these businesses, he started hiring little children that didn't have families, most disadvantaged youth. And that was what he was doing. Then the conflict broke out. He shifted his focus on providing an alternative to these young children that were being exploited by the warlords. So by the hundreds, he was disarming children that were actively acting as guards and soldiers for warlords. That shedded a whole new focus on him. And that put his life in danger. And ultimately, it's what led to him being assassinated. But he did so much more than that. He really focused on the commonalities between people. Somalia a country divided by clan and tribalism, where every area is designated by turf from different clans, where you wouldn't do business together, where you wouldn't cross over. He was able to really bridge these people together by focusing on their commonalities, something so simple as starting a football club, soccer, on one side, getting kids from one clan and then from the other clan, literally abolished a green line which separated hundreds of people without knowing they started to come over to each side, watching the games, started trading together, doing business, and that was it. So he came back with a whole new outlook with his dreadlocks and pastel shorts and just skipping to his own beat. And, you know, it's very interesting that just two years before he was killed, there was a, a South African journalist who wrote a story about him. And the title, ironically, was Elman, the only man who won't get shot in Somalia. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you, I mean, he obviously had a, he had a great entrepreneurial mind. Like he set up, as you said, the first electricity company and mm -hmm. made a lot of money out of that. So he was obviously a very competent man, and he had the capacity. He was obviously a threat 
because he was too competent yeah. by the sound of it. And um, I just wonder, it, it sounds wonderful to inherit this, but in its own way, is it a bit of a, a burden? Like you've come back to take people sort of almost revere him still and say to yeah. you, ah, you know, you are the living embodiment. I just wonder whether you really, whether that's marvellous <laughs> or not for a young woman to well, have. I didn't know if I was actually where I am today and the work that I've been doing in Somalia and how many years I've been there. It's not something I was really ready for. Mm, what really motivated me to come back to Somalia was seeing my mom that I hadn't seen in years and understanding what her situation was like. And like you said, for a lot of people, when they see me, sometimes they cry because they think of all the amazing things that he did and okay, this is his predecessor, she's gonna do it all. And it's a lot of pressure, but also, you know, I talk about what compelled me to go back to Somalia, being my mother and wanting to see her and working with her, but what really motivates me and inspires me every single day to stay is the people the people that I get to work with every single day, the people that I meet. And it's not, I don't think so much anymore about, can I do everything that he did? I know for sure I can't, mm. you know, but I can do my own part, I think, in trying to better my community, better my society as a whole. And it's an addictive process. Every time I go back to Canada or I travel abroad, it's great to get away sometimes. You need that mental break from all that chaos, but I feel guilty being away. Yeah. I feel that there's just so much more I can do being there. What a, what a perceptive thing to say. You think it's an addictive, that living at that in, intense level where you feel you're doing much good, it becomes slightly addictive, does it? It does. And, you know, seeing something that you do one day, one output, one idea that I bring forth, actually changing and impacting somebody's life, mm. it how could you not want to do more and try to reach more? Well, now tell us the story about your younger sister, because mm. there's an older, there's the, the older sister who was the half Italian, whom you're very mm -hmm. close to. Then there's another sister who stayed in Canada. Mm -hmm. There's you, and then there's your younger sister who yes. took a set of different decisions. My younger sister, again, same reason I decided to come back to Somalia. She came back as well, but she wanted to come back to visit me and my mom, and also she was having a little bit of a, as she calls it, a midlife crisis. At, <laughs> at, 20 years yeah. old and, <laughs> you know, wanted to take a break from her studies and then she came to Somalia and she started working with us at um, the first rape crisis centre that we founded and she was dealing very closely with young girls, very young girls, younger than 18, some her age and teaching them English, non-formal education and doing that for a couple of months she was just so heartbroken and disheartened and she just wanted to leave. She was disgusted by it. and. One day I had a very profound conversation with her and I asked her, okay, so what's your plan? What do you want to do now? She said, you guys keep doing the same thing every single day. You guys are doing responsive work. Why don't you change the environment? Why don't you change, make, prevent these horrible things from happening? And then I said, what role can you play in that? She enlisted in the army and now she is the youngest and the only female lieutenant in the Somali National Armed Forces at 22, leading a battalion of about 200 men. <laughs> It is. It's an extraordinary. It's. It really. We'd been chatting for about three quarters now, and this just sort of dropped in. I thought, my God, what an amazing turn of events. Now, I mean, what? How will she go? What will that be like for her? You know, I do a lot of. Um, I organise a lot of events in Somalia to also raise awareness and try to get the community on boards and things. And one of the things I. Uh, organized was a TEDx event, TEDx Mogadishu, and I convinced her to speak. And she told a story there that I never heard before. She enlisted in the army, went on a training, and then when you come back, 
you're bestowed with your first weapon, your AK-47 and your uniforms. And she's in line, queuing up with all these men, and then she gets to the front, it's her turn. She gets a shirt, a uniform shirt, and two pants. And then she asked, okay, where's the other shirt, or why do I have an extra pants? And they said, okay, this is because you're a woman, you can sew the two pants together and make a nice skirt out of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, she really worked her way up and started working with the deputy force commander, and she is at the crossroads of so many different issues, being a woman, a young woman, in a position to lead, grew up in the West, all of these things, and she's fighting different gender stereotypes every single day, and we, I myself am fighting a lot of gender stereotypes by being in a position as I am, but for her, really at the front lines of it all. Sure is. That's where it's amazing. really life or death every day if your men are not listening to you. Mm. So and she can lead them. I mean, in its own way, it's such a, it is a remarkable story about the military that they <laughs> accepted her mm -hmm. and that she has, I mean, she's obviously got a, a great deal of natural leadership uh, qualities about yeah. her, as you <laughs> clearly all have. So tell us about the work at the centre. Well, we, um, the Elman Peace and Human Rights Centre, it works in south and central regions of Somalia. Our main focus is human rights, and that means everything that it encompasses. Um, the work that my father accepted with the socio-economic reintegration of child soldiers, it's um, one of our main, main works that we do, and that means children that are being exploited by all factions of the war, whether it's clan militia, whether it's regional authorities, whether it's the government, or the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. And what we try to do with these children is provide them a safer alternative livelihood. So um, it's definitely a challenge doing that work and that doesn't only mean boys actually. A lot of girls and girl are, soldiers there are girl soldiers. Yeah. And there's different ways that girls are exploited by the conflict. Some have to play domestic roles, some are forced to marry the Al-Shabaab group and to um, they're forcibly married off to breed more soldiers. So you find girls as young as 13, 14, getting forcibly married off, right. getting impregnated, and then that's it. And then you have these girls that are as young as 14, 15 years old that are having babies and their family kicks them out and there's nowhere to go for them. So they're parents now. What do they do? So we provide them with opportunities as well so that they can have a socioeconomic reintegration, which really focus on the psychosocial counseling so that they can have that support to go back to being children and have also opportunities in the community that they can provide for themselves. So what we do, and uh, I'm not sure if any of you guys got a chance to watch the film that was screening earlier, Through the Fire, it covers a lot of the work that we do with children associated with armed forces and groups and not only tra training them in vocational skills training, but also giving them opportunities and setting up businesses for them. And this year we were working with a caseload of 750 children that were formerly associated with armed forces and groups and now setting up businesses for 200 of those as a pilot to see that if you don't just, we don't just train kids with diplomas, but we invest in them and give them an opportunity to change their lives, so. What sort of microfinance type? Uh, it's not microfinance, but we actually set up the business for them and then the profit that they generate from it, a portion goes towards their salaries, towards the running cost, and then another portion is saved. And the idea is that these businesses, we encourage the entire community to shop here, go to right. these businesses, to these restaurants, because you're supporting these kids. And then that portion that's saved gives that opportunity again to another group of kids. So also, we're trying very hard to end this culture of dependency, of aid dependency, where, okay, if this worked, next year, are we gonna write another proposal and wait again for this to work? No, so that the community has to support this initiative, and it's a, 
like a pay it forward kind of initiative. So, so they've got to come up with the ideas themselves, I the, ideally. The businesses, they come up with them themselves, but they have um, professional entrepreneurs, trainers, and they have financial literacy and management and business management. All those skills are... And, and where the, are all the trainers from? The trainers are from local universities, and they're also from... Somalis. They're Somalis, though. They don't come in from the West. No, they're Somalis. But we have been very fortunate enough to have a lot of volunteers that are Somali and non-Somali coming to Somalia to contribute their knowledge and what they know. And then, But mostly, when we have people that are coming from outside of Somalia, we focus on them training our organization staff because we want that knowledge to remain. And I presume the diaspora, too, the people who've, who've left during all these troubles, are they starting to dribble back? Yes, there's a huge influx of young people, of diaspora coming back to Somalia, and I think that's integral, that's so important, because I think one of the reasons why this conflict has protracted for so many years is that so many people left Somalia to yeah. flee from the conflict, just waiting for Somalia to become peaceful again. How can you expect it to become peaceful if you're from the outside just watching it? Everybody, I think every Somali has an obligation to go back to Somalia and see what you can do, if you want to, but to me, it's what compels me to come back and at least try to do my bit. And what about the work, particularly with victims of rape? Mm -hmm. That's another aspect, isn't it, at the centre? It is. With um, the work that we do as survivors of sexual violence, it started mid-2011, and we founded the first rape crisis centre and it's called Sister Somalia. When we founded the center, it was, we, were, we were working with the human rights monitoring, documenting, reporting of violations, and we saw over and over again that rape and violence against women and forced marriage, all these things kept coming up very frequently, but there's no social services available for it. So my mother, alongside two great activists, Lisa Shannon and Katie Grant, came together and they just started fundraising. And the first center, on an incredibly modest budget, which was 100% supported by people around the world who were just concerned about the situation for women in Somalia, started pledging money, $5, $10, whatever. And we were able to then bring in the post-prophylaxis treatment, post-rape kits for women. We were able to train counselors, and we very much focused on the emergency-based life-saving needs of women. A couple months after, there was a huge famine that happened and drought in central Somalia. And in that, we saw an influx of hundreds, thousands of people coming all to Mukdisha, the nation's capital. Desperate search of aid, but en route and on arrival, they were met with vast insecurities. We already had insecurities, mm -hmm. but then now there is violence mm -hmm. specifically against women. Most of these internally displaced peoples were women with children in tow. So when they came to Mukdishu, we saw that there was so much sexual violence happening inside the internal displaced people's camps, and there was no services for them. So we had trained community outreach workers who were making the services that we have available accessible to people and informing them about what is really available for them. And we saw, I think at our highest point, at least 13 women a day coming to the first center that we had that were raped within that day or the day before. So very much still between the first three days of their encounter. And since doing that, we've been able to build on our services. So not just focusing on the health, not just focusing on the counseling aspect of it, but we started to introduce access to legal aid. We started to introduce safe houses for those considered to be at an acute risk of either being re-attacked or were going through different processes that they still needed shelter and protection for. And I'm very proud with this what started off as a little project, Sister Smai, that was just funded by people who cared from around the world, that the reports and the statistics we were able to generate 
from that one city, then it led to greater funding from UN agencies and international organizations. But sticking true to the platform of Sister Somalia remaining mobile, we moved out of Mukdishu and went 10 kilometers out to a different region, which was at that time still controlled by the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. And just 10 kilometers out, the situation was completely worse, different even. But again, we started doing a lot of fundraising and getting support from people around the world to set up a center there too. The first center that we had moved from was being sustained by women who were now ambassadors within their own communities. Former victims were now victors and they were the ones who are sustaining that center, supported by some of our staff. And then again, when we were able to kind of put in place the same sustainable measures in that new location, we moved again to another one. And that is the spirit of Sister Somalia. So it's how not, many have you got now? We have three now. Right. Three in three different regions, and we are go moving away from the city to the rural areas as well, too. One thing that people know or don't know much about Somalia is that because it's been in conflict for so many years, there's been this whole culture of dependency on aid, and for the, the community knows the organizations better than the organizations know the community. So when you try to do advocacy, when you try to do work in that area, you find a lot of times that the community already knows what you're trying to sell to them. So we found that unless we actually work with the community on keeping these measures and these mechanisms and these ideas and honing them within their own community, then it won't be sustainable. And we've been able to move out of the city to the rural areas because it's being sustained by people, people that actually believe in it. Before I just open it up to the floor, just one more, a, a bit of a personal question. Um, I wonder whether you've been able to keep up your friends in Canada or whether this is such a big break, you know, and that, that you've become a very serious person in a way because of these very weighty things you're doing. I, I imagine it's very different to the friends' responsibilities in Canada. Well, yeah. I mean, I left when I was 19 years old. Uh, I had a lot of... I still have some people that I keep in touch with, but the conversations are different. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to keep in touch. I think as you grow, and there was an actual, there was an interesting session about that earlier, about how, how to break up with a girlfriend, but <laughs> there, it's just one of the things I think you learn as you grow that if you don't have the same interest anymore, it's difficult to keep in touch, but I do have um, some very close friends that I've kept in touch with. I mean, is there any fun for you in this life? Well, uh, one of the, I think, biggest sacrifices that you have to make when you work in such a serious place as Smaya, where there's just too much to do to think about fun, is that the social aspect of it is kind of a little bit pushed to the back burner. However, that's not to say that situation isn't changing in Somalia. With this new influx of a lot of young people and diaspora that are coming back, we're finding now restaurants and shisha lounges and all these new things that are opening up. So still a risk to go to those places, but <laughs> they're there <laughs> if you want to take the gamble. <laughs> well, now, I think I might... Um, I mean, I could continue chatting for a while, but um, we've got two mics, as probably you all know, uh, either side. So now the difficulty is I'll just see where are we right up there. Oh, there are people lined up already, ready to ask questions, so if you'd like to come up and just state your name and preferably um, ask a question rather than, no, no, you're not, are you asking a question? Uh, is, is that right? I, it's, sorry, it's just really difficult to mm. see. I think we have one Okay, over, over there, if you wouldn't mind, please, if you'd like to ask a question, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, oh, we can. Yes. We can. <laughs> um, 
I was just wondering, you spoke a lot about um, dependency on aid and um, sustainability. And how can people like us help when I think a lot of focus is on fundraising and donating to charities and things that often lead to dependency on aid? So how do we um, contribute in a way that will be sustainable? Thank you very much. I think that's a very important question. A lot of people want to get involved in areas that they can't necessarily travel to. So the first, the first answer you usually get for how, do, how, else, how can I get involved without coming to Somalia is, um, okay, sign a check for this much and you can help this. But uh, what we tried to do is we tried to eliminate as many overhead and as administrative costs as possible in all of our work. And the reason why is because that is not sustainable. So when what we find as sustainable is when we build centers that can last for the community. And we've been very fortunate to have people from all over the world donating in-kind support. So books, clothes, sending letters, commenting on our message boards and giving advice. That doesn't cost a penny, but it costs your time if you want to do that. And having that kind of support allows us to build the foundation that we work on. And if you are willing enough to come to Somalia, there's also a very big added value for us to have people that have different experiences and backgrounds contributing to building the capacities of our staff who will remain. And um, one of the biggest things that I always try to push for, for those who are daring enough to come to Somalia, is that we have no specialized mental health services. So when we talk about psychosocial support and trauma counseling and these very vital services that we offer, we don't have the capacity and the human resources. So, and that doesn't mean you always have to physically come, but if you want to contribute via email or through our social media links, and those, those are very important to invest time and interest and also keep the conversation going past just this platform to keep the issues of Somalia in the limelight, I think is very important and a good contribution to that sustainable that isn't always monetary. And the reason why I mention that is that Somalia, I think for the first time now, it has the world's attention for many different reasons. The, the famine in 2011 definitely put it up in there, but now you have movies like Captain Phillips and things like that that are out that people are kind of focused on Somalia. So to capitalize on this new momentum where Somalia is in the limelight, I don't think that women should be left behind. So if you can keep this dialogue going and know about the situation, about what's happening in Somalia, I think that's also an investment you can make. Can I just ask just quickly, are these for profit? One of the things you haven't made quite clear, um, do you expect these uh, ventures to make profits? Not, not the centres, that's a separate, but these other ventures that you say you plough the money back in, but are they profit-making rather than not-for-profits? We have our own businesses that we set up that make profit that oh. go back into the organisation. 100%. But the ones I talk about for the economic empowerment and alternative livelihoods for children and for, we for women and for youth, that profit goes back to them and for setting up other businesses right. for the opportunities for other kids. Okay. Yes, please. How would an 11-year-old Sydney girl like me help change the world? <laughs> well, you know what I think is really... I think what I think is a great way that you could contribute today is um, writing letters to some of the girls that are your age or even younger that are in our centers and our safe houses who have gone through horrendous things. But when they can hear from somebody that they can relate to is the same age and learn about what your life is like here, 
and then she can have something to also look forward to positively. And you can have a bond directly with our social workers and our translators. We can, we can make that bond that you can communicate to her and she can communicate to you. Lovely. Thank you. Yes, over here. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you for your story. My name's Genevieve and I'm from Sydney. I have two questions. The first one's leading from the first one, which explored our contribution and what we can do in a more direct manner if we were in Somalia, for example. So if we didn't have the professional skills in psychology and counselling, but you're interested to really get on the ground and see how it is and give, give your time, mm -hmm. For example, my, my background's in, I do acting and writing and everything. What, what can I do in, in a capacity that is there? And um... I'll just yeah. answer that one before you go to your next question. Yeah. The thing is, I always encourage people to come if they, they, want, they have an interest in Somalia and an interest in a social good and helping. There was a young man from Chile who came and worked with us for two months. He's a photographer. That was an opportunity for him to build his portfolio. But in exchange, what he did is he taught photography lessons. He worked with us on our ad campaigns, our advocacy and billboards that we did in the city. So it was an exchange. He had the opportunity to teach people his skill and also help the organization and the work that we do. And I'm sure there's a lot of use that we could do with people who can write and there's, <laughs> even speaking English, that in itself is a skill that is very um, important to, uh, to my staff and to the people that come to our center. So it's up to you. If you are interested in a social good, I think that that, in the loan, that alone is already your niche to come back and there is a, a market for it. And a quick second one, thanks. Okay, the second one is, um, it's related to your first story where uh, these young women are getting taken and they're forced to marry and uh, sexually assault and everything. How, how exactly are they being trapped and locked into these situations? What is the role of their family and why, how is it happening? I'm really curious. Well, forced marriage is definitely something that is embedded in tradition and in culture as well. Somalia, is, it was recently ranked as the second worst place in the world to be a woman, but just the same year, in 2013, it was ranked as the fifth. So our situation is getting worse, it seems. And I think now is because, for the first time, we have a government that's actively prosecuting and searching out for women who speak out. So if you speak out about your rape, you're jailed and you're arrested. This is a new situation. I think that's why it has scaled up. But in regards to forced marriage, to many, rape is considered as gender-based violence now. It's on the socio-political agenda. Everybody knows about it. But violence such as forced marriage, FGM, domestic violence, these things are not yet considered violence against women. It's normal. And what we find is the situation is different in every scenario. With the terrorist group, Al-Shabaab, what they did is they would kidnap girls, take them as bushwives, forcefully marry, like forcefully marry them, and then as soon as they're done with them for about a month, which you can't even call marriage, it's more like sexual slavery, they just toss them out. However, in other situations where the family is more destitute, it's actually easier for fathers to just marry off their daughters because one, they don't have to look after her and they don't have to worry about her security and constantly preserving her honor and making sure she doesn't get raped. So they're pushed off so that they don't have to have that burden. And also because there's money involved, the dowry. So it's different for every situation. 
but it's definitely something that is deeply embedded in the Somali culture and also why we're seeing now in the recent years with this high influx of a, a lot of Somali people coming back to Somalia thinking that, okay, we have a federal government now, it's safer, you can go back to Somalia. You have a lot of parents who are thinking that their kids who have grown up abroad are too westernized and they need to come back for a cultural or a forced cultural reconnect to become more Somali. And they send their daughters back and they're forced into marriage. Did I hear you say that um, they're encouraged to speak out, but then if they do, they pay a price for speaking out? Yes, it seems that our environment in Somalia now, it's, and this could be because attributed to a lot of pressure from the international community where, okay, if we're going to support a Somalia that is now has its first government and it's a federal government, it's supposed to be democratic, that women have to be safe. So with every high profile rape case that seems to be happening in Somalia and the woman actually speaks out or sometimes even the girl yeah. speaks out about it publicly, instead of addressing this, the government's approach has been to just arrest the woman and jail her and silence her. And this could be very much attributed to the penal code that we have, which was written in 1962, so much mm -hmm. has changed. But that law, it actually doesn't even classify sexual violence as an attack on the person. It's an attack on morals and tradition and integrity. So it's weird and it breeds way and it, it's an entry point for the government to charge women for embarrassing the government. Undermining the sort of cohesion of the society or something, yeah. I see. Yes. Hi. Um, you talked a bit about forced marriage and also um, teen marriage. Um, I was wondering how many people and, well, what people kind of do, um, what's the word? Like, do people stand up for themselves? Like, we know there are organisations mm -hmm. that stand up for the cause, but how many victims actually stand up for themselves? That's actually a very interesting perspective too. And women and young girls especially, it's not their choice most of the time. They are not even willing to make that sacrifice to just accept it because they're being pushed into it. So many do run away. Many leave that situation because you can't contest it. You can't just say, no, I'm not gonna get married and that's it. So sometimes they're forced to, to run away. And our safe house, it started off with just housing survivors of sexual violence that were considered to be at, an, at a risk of being re-attacked. So then we saw ourselves also taking in women who were fleeing situations of domestic violence and young girls who are fleeing situations of forced marriage. And what we do is that we can't keep these young girls in our centers all the time, but what we do is we have our caseworkers who are trained to mediate situations with the families. And that has been quite helpful actually in the situations where we find out that it's based on economic needs and the family just wants to marry her off so that they can get a little bit of money and they have that burden off their shoulders. So when we can intervene and mediate and offer the girl education and employment, that has helped a lot of girls from not being forced off to marriage. Actually, what is the, just, I was gonna ask, what is the education situation um, in terms of primary education and secondary? Everything in Somalia is privatized. Primary, secondary, university, and it's a lot of money. And that, what, what happens is, a lot of people can't afford and they can't access the education, but also when you look at it from the educational aspect of it, it's terrible because if you can pay your tuition every month, it doesn't matter what you know, it doesn't matter if you show up or not, you get your degree. And I've been in positions, unfortunately, where we try very hard to hire girls that have different degrees. And there's one situation that I always reference about 
which really disappoints me about the education system in Somalia, that she has a bachelor's degree in IT and she didn't know how to forward an email. And we had to, it's sad, but we had to retrain her, but it's all privatized. And so there's no public education provided no, by... No, but there was an initiative that was... Um, that was uh, launched by this now federal government about, it's called the Go Back to School program. And in three years, their aim is to send one million children back to school for free. And this is huge. And I do hope that it materializes and it does actually work out. But unfortunately, the minister that was working on it has been booted out. So, <laughs> Right, okay. Yes, please. Um, what advice would you give to women's um, from backgrounds such as yourselves, whose parents have left developing countries for safety or quality of life reasons, and they'd like to return but feel too intimidated or scared for various reasons. Do you want to just elaborate on that question? Like, um, I'll just be, get personal with this one. Um, okay. My, like, my family is originally from Bangladesh, and um, I've gone back every year, and you can, I mean, you just see some really awful things, but mm. both my sister and I have felt that there'd just be such sacrifice, like, personally and for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. And, like, what advice would you give to someone in order to cope with that change or to finally make that decision? Well, I think it's unique. And this that's definitely a journey that's not linear. What, what has worked for me may not work for you. But it's about your convictions. If you feel that you need to go back to, to uh, Bangladesh and try and do something for a social good, then it's up to you, but what makes things harder, what makes things easier, sorry, is if you do have support from the people most closest to you. I find, I don't think I could have just leapt into the work I was doing if my mother wasn't already there, kind of paving that way for me, but if you have convictions that are strong enough and you want to really change something in your community, then you should. I wonder if, just that, that's a very, very good and poignant yeah. question. I really admire you for asking it. Um, I remember meeting a, a Cambodian man near my house, and, and he was a lovely man. He was running the local restaurant, and he said, everywhere I look, there are so many problems when I go back to Cambodia. I cannot solve them all. I come back here to Australia. And I totally understood, you know, I yeah. absolutely, completely understood that sense of um, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, a hero, you know, and, um, and he felt, I could see he felt ashamed both, but resigned, fatalistic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought it was honest, you know. It is, and I think it's important for me to add as well too that when I went back to Somalia, I didn't go back with the mentality of, okay, I'm here to save you. Listen, no, it's not. It's, you really have to understand your context and everything in life is trial and error, I've learned. And one of the things that made it very difficult for me when I first came back to Somalia to try to implement all these, what I thought were fantastic ideas is that you can't make ideas or set up services for people. You have to do it with them and have their, their opinions in it. And that's why now, most recently in uh, Somalia, we have a drafted gender policy, which is good to have an actual framework on addressing the violences that women face and how to address them and prevent them. But this wasn't developed in Somalia, Where nor was it, was it for Somalia. In neighboring country, Uganda, because we have African Union peacekeeping troops there that are from Uganda and so other So you have African to become countries. a clever sort of operator, but, like I mean, networker. Yes, but I mean, this was developed outside of Somalia. Mm. It's, not, it's not contextualized to my 
context at all, and it doesn't make sense, and nobody was consulted. It's just from Uganda, here you go, Somalia, you know? Oh, so, and that's why I wanted to add this as well, too, that if you do want to return to um, Bangladesh and then try to do something for your community, make sure that your community is with you on it, too. It, you cannot go back with the mentality of thinking that I'm going to fix everything, because that doesn't work. Thank you very much. Um, over here, yes, please. Yeah, I think that's very good. Hi. Um, first of all, I wanted to say um, I'm really impressed and kind of in awe of the type of work that you guys are doing. It's really amazing. Um, I, too, actually am from Canada, grew up there, Somali background, and mm. it's amazing, I think, that to see people mm. kind of doing the work that needs to be done and being really, really brave about it because I don't know if a lot of people in the room realize, but it is quite dangerous to be there day to day, not knowing what's going to happen. Um, I have actually a question about how, working within that context, do you have to kind of fit into a certain type of box? Because just thinking, obviously, of like, you know, the religious values and the dress, you know, having to dress a certain way and, you know, mm -hmm. certain things that people here might take for granted. Do you want to maybe just speak a little bit about how you change the way that you are in public versus being in private and, you know, the religious values and all those kind of things? Well, of course, I don't dress like this in Somalia, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, you know, even when I walk, because I, like I said, everything that I do is very grassroots. So I, can, I go between different camps from my house to the centers. I walk, and when I walk, as a protective mechanism for myself, I do wear the niqab, where you can only see my eyes, and I have to. When I am there, I usually wear a long dress and a cardigan, and I wear a headscarf, and that's the dress there. That's what you do. Um, it is, every day is a gamble. It is dangerous, but I think the reason why I can do the work that I do, and it's not only me, everybody that works for my organization, is that we are so overtly exposed. Every, everything that we do, we, we do a lot of very dangerous work, whether it's with the child soldiers, the survivors of sexual violence, a lot of the advocacy that we do. And in that, thank God, we haven't had any incidents yet. There's the odd threat here and there, but I think the reason why is because of this legacy that of my father and the work that he incepted and how he really wasn't based or linked to any clan or anybody, that people really know what our direction and our ammo and our, what our position on most things are. We try not to be biased, and just as much as we push against the government for their violations, we do the same with the terrorist group. And when it comes to religion, I think that working in an Islamic country, you have to work with the religion, and we do. And the work that we do with uh, child soldiers, when we talk about de-radicalizing children that have a whole new warped ideology of what it means to be Muslim and what this jihad, this strife that they're on, that they're willing to risk their lives on for, you can't just go and give them new opportunities. You have to come at them from an angle with religion as well. And it's been very helpful for us to have support from a lot of religious leaders in the community that give the proper interpretation of the Quran. And when it comes to the work that we do with survivors of violence and women that have um, faced violence, we also work with the religion aspect too. Because you may not know, but in Somalia, to learn the Quran, to learn the religion, it's a privilege. And usually it's a privilege only for men. Both boys and girls are taught at it from a very young age, but only men really get to know what is written in the Quran. So if you don't know what's written in it, you don't know what your rights are. 
You don't know what your position in it is. So it's been very powerful for us to have also religious leaders come to our centers, teach women, to have a, uh, a prayer for them every single Friday and to reach a new audience that we can't reach. We can't go to the most religious of men and start talking about violence against women and equality because they just won't listen. But if they have a religious leader talking about it in the mosque, that has been a huge... And when did that start happening? That, that was happening from the beginning. Yeah. That's very And the reason why is because we're not just looking to help the direct beneficiary. If you focus on changing the environment for them too, you have to work with the community. There has to be sensitization and there has to be buy-in from all regards. And when they have somebody that they look up to, a religious elder talking about this and what the correct interpretation of a woman's position is in Islam and what they deserve, they're much more compelled to act on that than they would a young girl from the West talking about it. Sure. I'm going to go over here. Yes, please. Um, firstly, thank you for sharing your story. Um, you've just discussed about how you're working against the government and the legal system with regards to rape, um, and you've just touched on it slightly then, but I'm just interested in how you go about changing the systemic problem of domestic violence and rape and gender-based violence, or what the Western notion of gender-based violence within the rape centres? Well. I've said that since we've started the Rape, rape Crisis Centre, we began also focusing on many different kinds of violence against women. And since those three years now that those centres have been ongoing, rape is very much on the social issue and on the social agenda, and people are talking about it, and it's not as taboo as to talk about it as it was before. But to many people, violence against women it still only means that rape. So when we initiate dialogue about female genital mutilation, which has been something that has been discussed about in Somalia for many, many years. Now, local people are aware that it's not a religious requirement. Our new draft constitution for the government has banned it. And what we try to do is employ creative ways of not only targeting women, but also men and the younger generation especially, to break the cycle because it's not yet resonating. We find from mutilation, they're just going to cutting. So it's not, maybe the woman is not completely mutilated, mutilated, but they're still cutting off pieces of her body, which they're not supposed to be. And we've had very interesting discussions, actually, with focus group discussions with religious leaders that we put together and young girls and women, and we mix these different factions of the community and spark a conversation about, okay, what are your views about FGM, for example? And you find that the young girls in that, in that discussion will talk about the challenges that they have faced. But when you ask them if they have a daughter Will they do that to her? And the answer is still yes. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that cycle is not breaking is because they think they still need to do it in order to ensure some sort of honor or future for their, for their, for their to-be daughter. And when we talk about cultural change and having systemic impact on eradicating these things that have become necessary milestones mm -hmm. in a woman's life and are no longer even considered violence, we really have to have a leading example. So. With myself, when I talk about FGM, I, I'm in a position a lot of times where I have to talk about my own personal experience and how I haven't had FGM and there's nothing wrong with me. And when you can put a face behind it, then you have a new, I guess, role model or new image about, okay, she's not damaged, she's, she still has her honor and she has, this hasn't happened to her. And you know, we try to employ different methods of reaching people that can actually break the cycle. It doesn't make sense anymore to talk to maybe grandmothers of girls 
and tell them to advocate for it because they have contributed to their, their daughters getting FGM, probably to their granddaughters getting it. But the only way that you'll have a systemic change and a break in this horrific practice is if you can reach the younger demographic to break it. And that's what we focus towards. And I just want to add also to that for a cultural change and making that actual impact, what we do now is we work very closely with young men. And we started this um, Don't Do It For Us campaign where we had young men that are between the ages of 18 to 25 touring different schools, going to different camps and different communities and talking about how they don't want a girl that has had FGM, that hasn't been mutilated. And that has been a lot more impactful because yeah, these imagine. girls... <laughs> it was quite impactful because it gave them a new way of thinking. These are their potential husbands. These are the guys that they would want to marry. And when they see that these, these guys, young men are talking about it, saying that socially they don't want it, religiously it's not a requirement, and politically it's illegal, that that was a different way of approaching it too. I just must add, because it's a bit more context, it's an extraordinary work, that your, um, there's no succession laws for inheritance laws, for instance, for women to inherit. Um, and your own mother, when she came back, was not able to inherit any of the uh, aspects of your father's fortune, effectively. And so you could just talk about that, which just gives a broader context of the position of women, I think. Well, I think it's also, yeah, th that's very important to mention because, again, I touch back on the religious aspect of it. And if you look at the religion of Islam, women have, they have their inheritance guaranteed. Even if they're working, say your husband is working and you're working, you are entitled to all of your income. So what happened to my mother was, when my father died, he was, when he was killed, he was very wealthy. He set up the first electricity company. He set up all these different businesses and his beneficiaries were working there as well, but he was also making income. When he died with only daughters and no sons, my mother was cast away and considered not, you know, deemed okay or worthy of inheriting anything and neither were my sisters and I. That happened when my mother decided to come back to Somalia and run this organization that she had been working, uh, running alongside my father when, before he was killed, before we left Somalia. She decided to come back and run this organization in his name, and she wasn't even allowed to do that. She had opposition from her brothers-in-laws, from men on that other side of the family. And the reason why is because how could a mere woman run this organization and keep this legacy, this name alive. They'd rather have just everything be forgotten and nobody do anything than a woman touch it. So, so it's a, it's a broad-based... Uh, I mean, definitely. that just does. Now, I think we've just come to one more question, and you've been waiting, I think, quite a while. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your story, as, as everyone has said. Um, from when you first got back to Somalia to now, I guess your work has changed quite significantly, but where do you envision yourself um, sort of in the next three to five years, what are your priorities in your work going forward? I think that, um, you know, taking a lesson from what my sister told me, that my mother and I and the work that we do is very responsive and not very much on the preventative side. I won't be enlisting in the army like her, but <laughs> I am planning for, like, looking forward, my plan is to work very much in the policy level and decision-making aspects so that women are part of the decision-making of the processes that ensure their well-being. We don't have enough female in political positions. We only have two female ministers 
out of a cabinet of more than 25. And if women are not... <laughs> oh, is that here too? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... We women... won't go, don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a global issue, and that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's very amusing. <laughs> but yes, I think my my focus very much for the next coming years is on how to get women more in the driver's seat of the processes that ensure their well-being, and that doesn't always mean just working on policy development because that it's not enough to just have ink on paper, but to also work with survivors and the women in the community at large to hone this unique capability that they have to change their community. So having a survivor empowered and becoming an ambassador for gender justice is a lot, it will reach a lot more than I can by myself by making sure that there's a different policy put in place. So, yeah. There's a lovely, I'm going to thank you, because um, I've you. just been watching my time. There was a lovely line that you, you had in that film that some of the, particularly the young people you're working with, they don't even know exactly how to define peace. Mm. And I thought that, in a way, that seems to me to be what you're doing. You're attempting to define in different parts what normalcy might look like in Somalia mm. and, and to encourage people to... Would that be a fair comment? Definitely. I think, you know, I, a lot of the work I do, whether it's with women or with, with um, former combatants, all of it is very much centric on youth. And the reason why is because our population right now in Somalia, 70% of it is under the age of 30. The country's been in conflict for more than 23 years. So you have an entire generation who's only ever known war. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, not only is it important, it's, the, it's, the, it's a prerequisite to any progress or mm. peace for Somalia to really invest in this demographic. And with young people, when I talk to them about peace, what does that mean to you? They think development, they think buildings and nice roads and stuff like that. And we have that now, thanks to a lot of the support we have from the Turkish organizations that are there in Somalia, but we don't have peace because people mm. are not taking on that social responsibility to contribute to it yet. We don't have security because everybody just thinks that, okay, somebody will fix it. We don't have, we don't have these processes in place yet. And I think it's definitely a big, topic or big piece of Somalia that's missing right now that I'm trying to work towards, but reconciliation is really what we need. And it's we like don't a have new that. imagination. Yeah. Very impressive. Would you please thank Ilwad Elvin. <laughs>